Hi, I'm Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McAleer. And this is the Anne and Phelan Scoop. And what week are we in of the quarantine pandemic world? Shutdown, well, lockdown? lockdown. It feels like week 74. I think it's week five. I think this is April, the 455th day of April, is it? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I we're challenged. We're challenged. It's uh, very difficult. Tempers are frayed. Yes, patience is getting patience is getting thin. Something's getting thin. Something's frayed. Yeah, it, but but okay. we have but we have the we have the we have the antidote. Can I just say, patience may be getting thin, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of those things that we noticed at the weekend actually was the Wall Street Journal was reporting that lots of people are buying a lot of ice cream. Lots of people are buying a lot of alcohol. But I but I get I digress. We have a very busy schedule today. We're we have. Big podcast, a long podcast with a lot of great stuff in it, actually. And this podcast takes us from the beautiful shores of Malibu to Sydney, Australia, and covers everything from Dean Cain's secret recipe for dirty, spicy rice, which... You've just given away the secret recipe. Oh, that's a secret recipe. Okay, all right. But it's, anyway, it's, uh, you definitely don't want to miss that. And we also have a story about the, one of the biggest miscarriages of justice you may never have heard of. And the role of the mainstream media uh, in pushing the prosecution and persecution of their latest uh, scapegoat. So yes, we have an interview with actor Dean Cain about life under quarantine, his stage debut as one of the FBI Lovebirds, which we're relaunching FBI Lovebirds this week on YouTube. So uh, FBILovebirds.com, we'll be talking about that. Also Dean Cain's favourite piece of art. And you won't want to miss our second interview um, uh about what we would say, we would describe it as the Australian Duke lacrosse case, only worse in, in that there was a conviction uh, and a prison sentence before the accused was exonerated. But just like the Duke lacrosse case, actually, there was a media campaign that played a, lo- a large role in the conviction. So later we talked to one of Australia's leading journalists, Andrew Bolt, about the conviction of Cardinal George Pell for sex abuse. Cardinal Pell is one of Australia's leading uh, Catholics, the, actually the most senior Catholic in Australia, and how he was recently, uh, Cardinal Pell was recently exonerated. But first, let's go to Dean Kane. We spoke to Dean. Uh, he's in quarantine with his son in Malibu, and we spoke to him just before we came on air. So let's hear that now. Hi, and now we're joined by Dean Kane, um, and we're very honoured to have Dean with us today. Dean is an actor, a producer, a television show host former football player uh, i just want to so say not real football though oh not real football whoa 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 this is going to start <laughs> slow off down foot here i tell you <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's funny america where they can handle the ball like that's not real is that not rugby no this, that's american football that's the american football but he's best known by a lot of people oh, college football princeton versus rutgers that's the first football we had was a version of your soccer. And then we turned it into the game of American football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. American football. American yeah. football. Yeah. American football. Okay, all right. But Dean is best known probably by a lot of people for his starring role in the, low, in the young Superman, Lewis, Lewis and Clark, The Adventures of Superman. But to the people in this house and to us and to a lot of our friends, he is best known as pl- for playing Detective Jim Wood in the movie Gosnell. Hold up, fly. Look, that cabinet right there, it's full of little baby feet in jars. Look, that's not what we're here for. And for playing Peter Strzok in the FBI Lovebirds Undercovers play that Phelan wrote. Yes. 
What? Exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, question mark, question mark, question mark. So we got to know Dean very well on the set of the Gosnell movie when we were in Oklahoma. And it, one of the things that always struck me was that I learned, because it was the first time I had produced a movie, and I realized that a lot of actors like to run back to their trailer the moment they're not on set and the moment people aren't saying action to them. But in the case of Dean Kane, he was always hanging out with people, chatting to people, doing, doing selfies with people and being really, really friendly. So he turned out to be, and we had heard that before we did the movie, that he's like the nicest actor to work with. And we have to say that that's actually the truth. Can I just say, I felt he was too nice. I wanted him to, to go back to his trailer and, and rest. And rest. Uh, but no, there he was. Oh, let me take a selfie. Oh, you want me to phone your mother? Oh, I'll phone your mother. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that's, so that was the downside to being having, working with the nicest actor in Hollywood. And one of the other things that happened that was really great on the set was we got Detective Jim Wood, the real Detective Jim Wood, to meet the, the actor Detective Jim Wood, Dean Cain, um, and... That was, a, that was a great experience. When you're playing a real guy, it's really amazing to actually get to meet the real guy. So that was a wonderful thing for me as well. And, um, but you're always a little bit, you know, nervous because you're like, am I, am, I, am I being you okay or not really? And uh, he was really gracious and wonderful. So that was very cool. Yeah. So how are you faring? How are you faring during our, all of our first global pandemics that in living memory? In living memory, we've had a lot worse. You know, the Spanish flu of 1918 was, by you know, by geometrical uh, standards, worse. I mean, it was just unbelievably worse—fifty million people or something like that. But this is bad. Um, I, I feel bad for the people who uh, who are losing um, their livelihoods and things like that. And obviously, for those who are getting sick, the numbers are much smaller compared to that pandemic. Um, but for me, it's been uh, really simple. It's been very easy. I love being at home. I'm a homebody anyway. It's sort of a forced vacation. So I, I don't want to, you know, put anybody's face in it. But uh, for me, it's been phenomenal. So uh, yeah. I've enjoyed spending time with my son, my family, my dogs, my house. Um, but, you know, I'm, I think it's time for us to get the things rolling out again. I'd like to really see the economy come back. Obviously, I want it done as safely as possible, like everyone else. And mm -hmm. uh, I have faith that the administration is going to do a good job. No, because I'm realizing that normally, because we know you for a few years, and normally every month you're like on a plane, what, three, four, five times. So this is like, this is the longest you've probably stopped in a long time, right? Yes, and I realized how much I needed to. You know, by being here, uh, forced to be home, I realized how long it's taken me to sort of establish my normal routine again, like a, a normal routine of being home. And I realized how much I absolutely adore it and love it. So... Um, it's been eye-opening in that sense, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually very grateful for the lessons I've learned during this pandemic. Just for, the, for our listeners and people watching on, on this, uh, are you doing a Marie Kondo in your house then? Have you turned into one of those, are you tidying up now and uh, reorganizing all your pictures and things like that? No, not really. No. <laughs> uh, not really at all. I'm just being in my home. Little things, you know, my son kicked a hole in the wall uh, in my office, you know, a few years back and it was just there. I had never really taken to fixing it. Well, I figured out how to fix it, That's put some crazy. spackle in there and put it, you know, now is it a perfect job? No, but <laughs> I got to do that. And I got to, you know, organize my closet a little bit and go through some things and to have the, the time you realize what a luxury time is. And sometimes I think, uh, and I know I'm guilty of it and maybe others are as well of just getting so busy doing things that the things that matter, the things you want to do 
they kind of just go by the wayside. And uh, I think that that striking that balance is something that that I need to focus on a little more um, in the future. And this has taught me that. So we've just passed Easter this last weekend. We've had we've had Easter, um, and I know it's important to you, uh, the Christian calendar, the, uh, the most important and holy week. How did you find uh, passing Easter without being able to to go to the church? Well, you know, for me, going to church uh, is is one way to worship, but I, I don't need a church to worship in any way, shape, or form. Uh, my conversations with God tend to be, you know, one on one quite mm-hmm. often. Where, where I'm having my own conversation with God, and that can be out in the backyard. I have a nice backyard. Uh, it can be while watching my son sleeping. It could be um, at any point in time. So uh, not being able to go to church didn't bother me. Constitutionally, mm-hmm. not allowing people to go to church, that is an area where I think we can get into some 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 problems. And I didn't raise a stink about it, um, but, um, you know, uh, for me, it wasn't a problem. But, but um, I can see how it could be a problem for others. No, no question about it. And I, and I see the constitutional issue there. I also see that, you know, the public health issue. So it's a, that's a double-edged sword. So what advice do you have for people who are stuck at home? Um, what would you recommend that people should do? Like what's been working for you? Well, see, again, I'm the worst person to ask because I'm so happy to be home. It's like, <laughs> I, if, this, if I got locked down for a year, I don't think I'd be that unhappy. Um, it's been a month. I said before, like getting two weeks would be incredible. Now we're a couple weeks into it, two, three weeks into it. I could use another month without even blinking. I am going to call him out. I'm going to call our guest out on that. I do not believe Dean Cain could survive without meeting people for more than a month or six weeks. He's the, I say this both, you know, as a producer looking at him going, stop talking to those people, go and learn your lines. Um, It was my, it was like, he is the most social person uh, and the most generous person generous with his time he talked about time being valuable he was so generous I, I remember once going out to lunch with him and you know he hardly got eating his lunch because people would come over and he, he never once rebuffed, rebuffed yeah. or even I only not only that but I, I didn't feel like a chore right it felt like this is something he enjoyed doing so I I wonder Dean how you would survive with much more time on your own well, I'll tell you what, you know, when we were shooting that film, the people that we were making the film with, the actors and the extras and the people who were there giving their time and, and being a part of the film, they were wonderful people. So it was really easy to be thankful to them um, and, and respectful and, and, and have conversations with them. And they were wonderfully sweet people. That makes it easy, you know, and also the nature of the role, which I liked, it was my dialogue was so well written. <laughs> that uh, boom, boom. it wasn't difficult uh, for me to learn because I always knew my dialogue, of course. Yes. Um, but uh, but it wasn't difficult to learn. And when you know when when dialogue is easy, um, all you have to do is listen to your other actors, and your dialogue sort of comes from that. So uh, with great actors, we were, Nick Searcy did a great job directing it. Um, you know, I I, I love my partner. You know, uh, we were uh, Alfonso Rachel was phenomenal, and we had a great time, and it, all of it was just great. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And the people, again, the young actors and the folks who were there were just yeah. awesome. So it was, it was really easy to do so. But thank you for the nice the nice things. But I can tell you what, I could be here. I could be – because I go to the store. You know, I go to the store. I do things. I see people out and about. But Malibu, where I live, is pretty much a – like the picture in the background there. It's pretty much like a lot of beaches and a lot of space and, and – so That's not a picture. 
That's real. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's our window. That's window. That's window. Yeah. I didn't realize that was the window. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Maybe not. not so, I mean, I w- one thing I would say, but I'm with, just to let people know, we're talking about the Gosnell movie here uh, about abortion doctor Kermit Gosnell. It was easy to write the dialogue because so much of it is actually based on actual things real people said. And you're sort of echoing that because you said it was so easy to remember because it was well written. It wasn't easy, it wasn't well written. It was just it was straight from Jim's mouth onto the page almost, right? And straight from the courtroom onto the page. So real people had said it in that real way. And, uh, you know, that's what made it so much easier. But uh, So, okay, let's imagine that you are enjoying yourself. Uh, uh, the jury's out on that in your in your isolation. What movies would you recommend? Which, which Dean Cain movies? Uh, there's a lot to choose from would you would you would you recommend for uh for people have you you've a new one out at the moment have you uh, on hallmark or no on on netflix I, I new ones coming out left and right i got kids movies big movies but if i were to sit if i were to recommend uh three movies of mine for people to watch while they're home um i would say obviously gosnell i think that's an important you. film and i think people should watch it and it's uh and it's recent. Um, I think I'd like them to see um, The Broken Hearts Club. It's a movie I made back in 2001, I believe. Um, great, great, fun story. Um, and I play gay in that. Very well, by the way. I'm kidding. Is that on Netflix? Where do we find that, Dean? Where do we find The Broken Hearts Club? I, I don't know. I think it's probably ev- I think it's everywhere. Okay. Um, and okay. I think... I just um, want to say he did, he did talk about cleaning out his closet earlier. He did. See, there it is. Okay, what's the third one? Well, I'll give it four films. Watch Vendetta. Watch Vendetta if you want to see some punching and tough guy stuff. That's a lot of fun with Big Show. He's phenomenal. And uh, I'm a cop in that one as well. And then watch maybe uh, Out of Time with Denzel Washington. Um, He's my favorite actor and he's brilliant. Um, But those are movies of mine, I would say go watch those. I have a, uh, I'm going to watch 1917 today. Ah. Very good. We haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. Now I did see that you were out and about in Malibu. I saw the Daily Mail caught you with your dogs. So we have two cats, Mr. Top Cat and Mr. Scaredy Cat. Can you tell us who your dogs are, what their names are, and what they're like? And um, how many of you do you have? Three. I have three dogs. My son has one, and I was caught with my son's little dog. So that's four dogs. Then you really have four dogs, but really, yeah. But he, you know, he's usually in college and uh, in North Carolina, but he can't be, so he's here now. And so I was with, um, I had his little dog with me. Um, but I have three big dogs that run around my backyard, um, and they are lovely. I have a, a, a black lab, uh, Bella. She's about eight and a half years old now. She's amazing, um, and she's the matriarch of the household. And then um, I've got uh, two boys. Uh, chapter and uh, Bandit, and they're about a year and a half old, and they're insane, but they're lots of fun. And then we have little Malibu, who is that little, the little, um, what is she called, the Zushan? Um, mm. And I always told, I listen, I am not a little dog fan. I said no little dogs. I'm not going to have that. My son goes to college, and what's he do? Gets a little dog. Yeah. <laughs> and then what happens? She's the sweetest thing on the planet, and I am in love with her. So, what's the name of the little dog? Yeah, what's the little dog called? Malibu. What's that? Malibu is the little dog. With the little dog, yeah. Which is easier when you're in North Carolina to have a dog named Malibu. When you're in Malibu and the dog's named Malibu, it's kind of obvious. <laughs> exactly. A lot of people, our, dog, our cats are called Scaredy Cat and Top Cat, and people object that you can't call a cat 
cat. It's, you know, it's like calling somebody film human. <laughs> so, so, sorry. I see the problem there. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. the problem. Yeah. So, um, the reason we we have you on here today, not just because we like talking to you, but where you were Peter Struck in our play FBI Lovebirds Undercovers, and I'll just tell the people out there, uh, FBI Lovebirds Undercovers was a play based on the verbatim text of. Lisa Page and Peter Strzok, the the lovers, the FBI lovers, who were also involved in, you know, it's, I think it's fair enough to say this, involved in a plot to at least mess with the president, undermine the president. They were not professional. You know, this is the deep state, and these are the deep state texting. It's As I say, it's a, it's a John le Carre novel with a bit of teen Vogue romance thrown in, and uh, it's... It's every time I see the play, I laugh. It's yeah. it's hilarious, I and mean, people may not think text messages. But, well, of course, text messages between two middle-aged lovers are funny. I think that it, almost invariably, and and throw in the political intrigue, and it's an, an incredible play. And it was on. We had it on in DC about six months ago. Then we brought it to CPAC, and that's when we met President Trump. Uh, you'll remember that. And uh, so we're relaunching it this week. T- tell us. Um, you played Peter Strzok. First of all, when I can't remember if I phoned you or emailed you, when I did, why did you answer the phone? <laughs> and why did you say yes? Well, first of all, I knew that um, having worked with you on Gosnell and having that stuff sort of not ripped from the headlines, ripped from the actual transcripts yeah. and the reality of what we were doing uh, on that film was was fantastic. So I already had a very good experience. Um, and I was aware of Peter Strzok and, and Lisa Page, and I had seen um, certainly some of his c- congressional testimony and things of that nature. And um, I saw his wiggle and some weird looks and some things. And um, I saw just sort of his demeanor, if you will, during those um, testimonies and uh, during the hearings. And it sounded to me like a wonderful bit of real life that we could put out there. And, and, you know, it's, it's a dramatic reading, so, so we do have some fun. We, uh, to borrow a, an English expression, we take the mick out of it quite a bit, or take the piss a little bit, which is fun, um, and it's fun to do, but these are their words. And, yes, of course, some things will, will play up a little more than others and stuff, but, but the reality is when you see the congressional testimony in one way, you know, and, and just watch little bits and pieces as we all see on the news media, it can create any narrative you sort of want to. But when you really put them down like this in our – narrative and the way we did the FBI lovebirds, um, it's pretty clear um, that they felt they were doing what they thought was right for the country, even though it was against everything the Constitution stands for. And uh, I think, honest to goodness, um, people seeing and hearing their conversations, knowing that the positions and the status they held within the FBI is is an odd thing. Plus, themselves presenting themselves as such and even to each other as such virtuous, wonderful people. Oh, yes. While carrying on an affair and doing the most unscrupulous stuff is is the height of hypocrisy. And that's a lot. It says a lot about, I think, the way Washington um, and the higher levels of the FBI and the DOJ and place, places had become beforehand. I think now they're cleaned up quite a bit. They're being cleaned up quite a bit. Uh, and I think President Trump has a lot to do with that. Um, and his new new groups of people coming in. Yeah, there's been some change, and I think the change is good. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's a very entertaining, um, what is it, 40 minutes, hour? I don't know how yes. long it is now. Yes. 
but uh, yeah. I think it's very entertaining. And I think it sheds a light uh, on this relationship that I don't think people had really have any idea, even if they follow the news. I don't think they have yeah. any idea of what actually, this relationship was like. Just following up with that, actually, because I, I think that's a really good point. And I, so we we had a we had a, a showing as you obviously you played the Peter Struck just recently at CPAC, and afterwards we had a Q and A. And I think one of the first or the second questions I don't I'm sure you remember this. Uh, I think it was a woman who came forward and spoke, and she was in tears because she was so disturbed by what she learned from the play. And as you say, and, and we're very aware of like, it's very funny, we've all laughed, but I thought it was really interesting. It kind of, it, it caught me up actually, when she stood up and said, God, I, I read everything, I know, I read all this stuff, but watching this, I am so upset for the country that this happened. I thought that yeah. was amazing. Yeah. Um, what, what was your reaction to that? Well, I think, it's, I think it's awesome that someone got the point, especially someone who is so, knowledgeable like she was and somebody's yeah. why did i not see this why was i not aware of this i, I never saw it in that in those terms and i think it was hugely important that that she got to see that and i hope other people will take away the same thing from watching this you know we only get news media you you only get so much even though it's a 24-hour news media you don't get really in depth in things you don't get to see things I don't think anybody is really aware. They've heard some of the texts, you know, Hillary, God, Hillary should win, you know, a hundred million to, 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 to zero, things like that. They hear some of the texts, but they don't hear all the little innuendo and all the things, you know, the FBI, you know, the FBI doesn't deserve us, things like, I mean, things like that and their, their feelings toward, it's just, it's just, I think it's, um, I think it's a whole other layer and under the onion, if you Yeah, no, I, I, and, you know, things like we should launch that, investigation the russia investigation talking about impeachment right away this is before he was even elected and a lot of journalists say oh mcaleer has edited this you know to suit his agenda or edited this to push an agenda and and, and i'm going you write articles about the fbi emails right that are 600 words long maybe 800 at maximum you use about four quotes from the emails you you so you boil it down to four quotes and six hundred words of comment your own comment, and I I boil it down to an hour and ten minutes five thousand words of only their words and I'm the one that's editing, yeah, yeah, and I editing. and I think that's what's so powerful is that it, it's it's all there and and it all makes sense and it's all very shocking. Yeah, it's easy in six hundred words and four quotes to paint a picture that you want to paint. Yes. But when you when you do it over 5,000 words and an hour of performance, you get a narrative. Yes. And the narrative, it, it, it has a through line. And there was definitely a through line. And um, I think more and more is being uncovered. I mean, John Durham has not yet released his report. There's a lot of things sort of leaking out about, like, what's what he's going to find and all the different little different pieces and stuff. I, I don't think we've seen the last of it. I, I really don't. Oh, no. Uh, how explosive it gets is going to be really interesting. Yeah, no, it's going to. Be, yeah. Let me go back and watch that play again. Yeah, no, I think I think it's, but I think with the new stuff coming out, because there was thirty thousand emails or thirty thousand loads of text messages that they didn't release uh, that 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 are all there, and I want to know what's there as well. And I just want to say to people, we're relaunching it on YouTube, fbilovebirds.com. Uh, the play uh, we filmed the play in Washington, and uh, one thing I will say f first of all is it may sound boring, it may sound dry. A text messages of two high-level bureaucrats, FBI, FBI operatives, and their con 
questioning by congressional uh, leaders. But let me tell you, because there's this love story in the middle of it, and because it's it's acted by Dean Cain and Christy Swanson, it is not boring. It is not dry. It is very, very funny. And, and you know, I was writing and I thought, this is good, but, you know, and, and everyone says this, but, but when I saw what you guys did with it, I was just blown away. Now, the directors were great and the staging was wonderful, right? The sta- you know, what he did, what he did was six chairs. Yeah. Like six chairs. That was created a, a whole world. Created a whole world with six chairs and, and four actors. Like, I mean, first of all, were you surprised how funny it was when, it, when, you, when you started on stage and how it was it working with Christy and, and how did that add to the humor? Well, to start with, uh, getting Christy along as Lisa Page was a huge coup, if you will. It was a wonderful thing. You know, Christy doesn't like doing, she'd never done a live play. I'd never done a play before, live in front of an audience. Um, and she was unsure about it, and she is a little unsure about her reading skills in public, and so she likes to do it. So she was really nervous about it. I tried to keep her as calm as possible about it and, and build her up, and she crushed it. She was so good. Did you get laid yesterday? Oh, huh. uh, that's funny. Paid, not laid. <laughs> Um, and so funny and so good and, and wonderful in both performances. Um, she really did a, a great job. And yeah, I was surprised at how funny it was because the first time I came in and we did the readings and stuff, I, I wasn't thinking in terms of comedy. I don't know what I was thinking. I was just thinking it's going to just show the salaciousness of what these guys are doing. But when you start reading it, I realized halfway through the first rehearsal, I'm like, this is a comedy. I, I wasn't sure that it was a comedy. And then I realized how funny it was, and it just kept getting funnier and funnier because, like you said, you know, text messages between middle-aged lovers is damn funny, especially when they're acting like they're in junior high school. It's incredible. You're like, wait a minute. You're the top counterintelligence investigator in the FBI, maybe in the world, and this is the conversation you're having on your work phone with your paramour, if you will. I mean, like, what? You, if you wrote it, they would say, okay, it's a little too surreal. It's too much to be real. Uh-uh. And now you're trying to throw over, I mean, overthrow a duly elected president. I mean, if you told me that plot, I'd go, Fellum, it's a little far-fetched. Yeah. But it <laughs> played out there like that is what they were doing and acting like teenagers at the same time. It was, it was ended up being hysterically funny, very entertaining, um, and certainly a side of these two that hasn't been portrayed enough in the media, in my opinion. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, you did a great job, and we're so excited to relaunch the FBI Lovebirds this week. And so, because yeah. people are, in, uh, you know, stuck at home, they have time. We're realizing that we phone people. Everyone's at home now. You phone people. Everyone answers the phone. It's yeah. like this weird thing, you know. We have two last questions. We're coming to the end of our time with you, and we ask all our guests two questions that we are, are very interested. And actually, this is kind of interesting. So everyone is confined at home. People are starting to cook a lot more than normal. What's your go-to dish? What are you famous for, Dean? Now, what would you cook up to impress us? Well, first of all, I cook all the time anyway. Um, so I cook. So I love to cook. Um, I just, I made Easter dinner for seven of us. Um, and we were all, we're all confined. And so we're all quarantined. Um, we're next door to each other. So we're, we're nearby. So we were yeah. able to get together for this because the other three, well, we have th- four here, three there, and nobody, that three, I deliver groceries to. So nobody's been out. We're being very good at social distancing, but I cooked a Easter meal for um, for seven, and uh, I cooked a, a, roast, a roast chicken. It was lovely. 
and uh, uh, I did smashed potatoes. And you know, you, you you boil them and then you squish them down, and then you put some butter and salt and pepper on them, and you nice. bake them, and they get crispy and lovely. And then, um, my, but I'm most famous for is my my dirty spicy rice. And I gave this, I gave my dirty spicy rice um, recipe to Christy and the boys over there crushed it and she's made it again. She posted it on Twitter. It looks a little different than mine. It looks very good. Okay, I have to say this. You have to share this recipe with us. Will you share this recipe with us? I will. Okay, that's brilliant. Okay, we we will send that out to everyone. I'm really happy about that. I love new recipes. And I love spicy rice. Second question. Okay, cocktail, mocktail. What would you, what's your go-to cocktail, mocktail? First of all, mocktail shouldn't even be a word. I agree. I agree. I agree. I just threw it in there. I just threw it in there. We're, we're, we're nothing if not inclusive. We're, yes, inclusive. we're being inclusive. You're Irish. No, he's a teetotaler. He's a teetotaler, but I drink for two. <laughs> Brilliant. You, Brilliant. You just I, knew it. I don't, you know, I make a, a really nice, clean uh, margarita. Um, but it's, it's, oh, it's kind like. of the version they call it, but it's very simple. It's really just a beautiful tequila, like a Casamigos silver oh, yes. on, on ice with a little squeeze of lime juice. That's it. Ooh, okay. just, and, 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 and it's got a beautiful tequila. Otherwise it's got a bite and it's not good. And, or yeah. either that or just pour a glass of Don Julio 1942 on the rocks. And I'm just happy right there too. Um, so that's, I'm simple with tequila. I go with that. Otherwise I don't really make, Many other cocktails, except for a vodka soda with, and I use that. The Khalifa Farms makes this uh, Khalifa. I don't know how to see. I have to look at it. Uh, they make a uh, ginger limeade, so it's literally vodka soda, ice, and a splash of that ginger limeade, and that is so refreshing, Gorgeous. lovely on a summer day. Oh, and it's oh, oh, and, 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 a, and a beautiful thing to think about during a pandemic as well. Because I just realized, I just read during the weekend, during the weekend I read in the Wall Street Journal that of course alcohol sales are off the charts in every category, but the biggest category is hard liquor. Interesting. Really up high, like yes, like 70% up sales in like tequila, gin, etc. like that. Okay, so last question. We always ask people for a piece of inspirational art, a poem, a, a quote, a novel, something that has been important to them as a piece of art. What piece of art would you like to share with us, Dean? Well, I have hanging on my wall right next to me a, a, a Picasso. Uh, it's an aqua tint. Um, and it's a little simple bull riding, a bull fighting thing that he has there. And the reason I like Picasso, he is my favorite artist. Here's my little mini Picasso. He lives oh, with He's a good great. dude. Um, oh, and I, I have another Picasso as well, but I love Picasso because I was inspired by a book that I read back in the day called The Sun Also Rises. Yes. Now, I read it as a young person, um, and there was this weird romanticized version of Spain that I had in my head. And it just permeated my brain, you know, having the little satchel of wine on your, you know, on your shoulder as you're cruising through doing these things that he was doing back then. Um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Hemingway. Um, and so he's my favorite author. And so I had this romanticized idea of Spain in my head. And so I looked at all the Picasso art and I just loved it. I've, now, of course, fast forward, you know, decades, I've had a home in Spain for 20 years um, you know, I, I, I love Spain. I think it's a beautiful place. So I have a Picasso Aquatint here that reminds me of all that romanticism and all the ideas of that book that when I read when I was a young man and all of those romantic ideals of the time. I reread the book 
10 years ago and I was like, this, they don't do anything in this book. Nothing happens. Funny, <laughs> funny. I was like, what the hell? I, it's different yes, yes. than what I remembered, but I still have that romanticized feeling. I, I, yes, that is one thing about Hemingway. Not much happens, but they eat a lot of food. Which, which explains my love of food. He, he has a whole page after page of describing his his lunch, you know. And then, you know. But isn't that everything we all know and love about literature? That a lit- that a, that a book like that can have such an impact on you that you are this huge, you know, lover of Spain, have a home there, have a huge relationship with the country, and obviously a very tough time for for your friends in Spain, by the way, because I think Spain is either the f- today today Spain has the most deaths on the planet Earth. Now, of course, we don't, we're not getting the numbers of dead in China because, of course, they lie. After China, certainly the next number is, is um, Spain today. They have even overtaken Italy, which is very disturbing. Um, but, Dean, listen, we want to let you go. You have been so kind and so gracious with your time. We really, really appreciate it. We want you to stay safe out there in Malibu, and we look forward to the next time we guys meet up. Okay, Dean, stay safe. Take care. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye. So I am totally going to get the recipe from Dean, and I'll put that up on the Facebook page. You definitely, definitely want to get that. I'm definitely going to make it, and I'm going to make it this week. I I think I detected a little hesitation in Dean's voice at the end there when you said you get the... He was going to send you the recipe, but does he agree to it going public on our Facebook page? Is this a case where we should ask for forgiveness rather than permission? Or will we be forever sullied in the name of Dean, in the eyes of Dean Cain if we put a secret, spi- dirty, spicy rice uh, secret recipe on, on public consumption? This is, these are the moral dilemmas that we have to work with. Can I just say that he just sent it to me? It just came up on my phone and uh, it's very spicy, so it wouldn't suit everyone. But i tell you one thing, I'm definitely making it because I love spicy food. But um, just to remind everyone as well that tomorrow you can watch the FBI Lovebirds for free on YouTube. Just go to FBILovebirds.com and please share because, you know, people really need to see this play. And once you've seen it yourselves, and this is a great time to watch it, watch it with family. By the way, you could do a virtual watch party and watch it like with a bunch of friends on Zoom and then have a chat have a chat about it afterwards but please do watch it and leave a comment on youtube we read everything we're, the, we're those kind of people aren't we yes, yes we are and one thing i'd like to say about uh, the play we didn't discuss there with dean was you may notice that uh, originally there were four actors uh, if you remember four actors and the reason we're relaunching it was because one of the actors uh decided that he didn't want his image in the play and he didn't want his voice in the play and due to a contractual you know fine print where we weren't able he, he he got youtube to pull it he got us to pull it from youtube and we had to edit him out that's christopher wood the actor who played the democratic congressman uh, i suppose i think he just didn't like uh, that it was getting so much publicity in the end and uh, he he got it pulled and we had to go do an expensive editing job pull it from youtube but it's going back up now and you'll see it and you know nothing personal christopher i don't think you brought much to the show anyway so uh, we we think it's still a great play i think it's a really unfair thing to do by the way to be in a play that you've read you've read over and over again you've rehearsed 
um, to travel with us to Washington, D.C. No objection, no objection, no objection. We had beers together and we hung out. Um, not a word, not a word. And then when, as Film says, once the thing started to really take off and we had, I think, nearly over 100,000 people had already watched it on YouTube, we, you know, he decided to pull, pull the plug, which I think is really unfair and not at all very brave for an artist. But right now we want to we, we go to a very brave journalist and columnist in Australia, Andrew Bolt, to talk to us about the Cardinal George Pell uh, convi- over the overturned conviction of yeah. Cardinal George Pell. Andrew Bolt is a, an amazing columnist and journalist, and uh, you, you you won't want to miss this interview. So let's let's go over now and hear the interview. Uh, Seventeen hours difference, but he's still looking wide awake. So let's let's go to Andrew now. Early in the morning in Australia. Now we're joined by Andrew Bolt uh, to hear a disturbing. But a disturbing liberal-fueled miscarriage of justice in Australia, um, where it could be argued the liberal mob helped send Australia's most senior Catholic, Cardinal Pell, to prison for child sexual abuse. Uh, it's a disturbing story, but nothing new, I think, to any of our viewers and listeners who are familiar with the Duke Lacrosse fake rape scandal or the persecution of the Covington High School boys. Um so it's it's the Australian version of this, and there's no one better than Andrew to tell us about the Cardinal Pell case. Just to give you background, Cardinal Pell has just been cleared by, I think it's the Australian Supreme Court, but Andrew will fill us in on that. He was released last week, and uh, Andrew has just come from interviewing him. So let's we'll talk to Andrew about that interview and, and the background of the case. But first, let's tell you about Andrew. Uh, we first met you, Andrew, was it 15 years ago, Andrew? Uh, probably even longer than that feeling. <laughs> Yeah, we were touring Australia with our documentary, Mind Your Own Business. And uh, so Andrew Bolt is a is an Australian political commentator. He's a columnist and blogger. And uh, according to Wikipedia, that font of wisdom and accuracy, Andrew Bolt is a controversial figure, public figure, who has frequently been criticized for his alleged abrasive demeanor and accused of inappropriate remarks on various political and social issues. So I can think of, of no higher recommendation and a more suitable guest. And in fact, we made it a condition of his appearance that he must have an abrasive demeanor yeah. <laughs> and utter inappropriate rem- and utter inappropriate remarks right. on, ver- on various political and social issues. Yeah, we can't use this if you don't use yeah, yeah, controversial remarks and uh, inappropriately uh, aggressive. Yeah. Ab- abrasive, right. So, so all the way from Australia, please welcome Andrew Bolt. Well, thank you very much for that. I mean, uh, yes... Uh, Inappropriate remarks like Cardinal George Pell is innocent. <laughs> that's that's what I've been accused of. <laughs> Honestly, uh, you're quite right, guys, to, to say this is, is uh, an example of the uh, liberal elite uh, actually going for someone. I mean, uh, George Pell, uh, in my uh, interview with him, said he's a victim of the culture wars in part, and it's absolutely correct. And that's what makes this case so fascinating because it's not just one of those pylons that you tend to get, you know, everyone jumping in on social media to attack a a conservative they think they can get. This is one where it actually involved organs of the state, uh, the police force uh, and also the state-funded national broadcaster, which is not like America's NPR, it's more akin to the BBC on steroids. It's a massive media organisation and that is what makes this so sinister. 
first of all, I, I want to ask you, just we'll talk about Cardinal Pell in a moment. I want to ask you about Pandemic Australia, because uh, people are very interested in how other countries are handling yes. this or not, or mishandling it. A uh, bit of background, Australia has a conservative government now. Um, uh, the last election, they were supposed to be swept away in a in a liberal wave, and that, uh, like many elections recently, that didn't happen. So, tell us about the pandemic in Australia. Uh, are you under lockdown? Are uh, has the Conservative government behaved in a reasonable, rational manner, or have they been swept up by the liberal uh, consensus that we need to stop everything? Well, it's really been quite a bizarre thing and uh, almost unlike anything you've seen elsewhere. We have the world's biggest moat and we delayed in using it, which I couldn't believe. Uh, we were one of the first to ban flights from China, but then sat back in our haunches and let people fly in the virus from Europe and America uh, until a bit too late. We then had, uh, particularly in the two most populous uh, states, New South Wales and Victoria, quite severe crackdowns. You're not allowed to go outside without a lawful excuse. Uh, you can't sit alone on a park bench. In Victoria, you can't even go out surfing. Apparently, the virus is sitting there out there on the waves. You can't go golfing by yourself. Um, and we've sat there. What's been most extraordinary is, uh, on the one hand, the severity of the bans and our excellence of the health service uh, has enabled us to, you know, they talk about squashing the curve, we've, uh, lowering the curve, we've been squashing it nearly flat. We've had only about between 30 and 50 new cases a day over the last couple of days. We've got thousands of empty ICU beds, intensive care unit beds, waiting for the flood that never arrived. And yet the government now, the federal government, is too paralysed with fear to actually say, hey, maybe we can start relaxing the restrictions, which is just extraordinary. And I was talking to the health minister only last night. I said, well, what is your metric? Until we have absolutely no cases at all? Uh, until we have just no more deaths? So what exactly are you looking for to ease these crippling restrictions that's costing the so many Australians, their jobs, not not to mention their freedom, and he wouldn't tell. Yeah. Well, sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Um, and uh, those two states you talked about, would they they'd be run by a liberal uh, administration, or a, a, a leftist administration? Well, increasingly it's hard to tell the difference, to, to be honest, feeling. But uh, one is a conservative, well, a liberal one, as in our big L liberal, as in right of centre, allegedly. But that it was scarified by making an absolutely ludicrous error early on the peaks where they had a ship with sick passengers on board uh, and they should have known they were sick. Well, they did know they were sick with two ambulances to take a couple of, of them off. And they allowed all the passengers to disembark, catch interstate flights, take the bus, take the train, go home without quarantining anyone. And that is responsible for more than 25% of our debts. Wow. So wow. since then, they have gone absolutely nuclear to prove they're really tough, which is ludicrous because one of their ministers got busted traveling and had to quit. While the other state is uh, by a socialist left Labor government, which seems to enjoy the smack of power rather yes. than that. So, so tell us, um, tell our listeners uh, about Cardinal Pell. Who is Cardinal Pell and why was he the perfect uh, scapegoat for this mob? 
Oh, what a perfect scapegoat. He was uh, always the target of media abuse for as long as I've known, uh, known him. He, when he became Archbishop of uh, Melbourne, which is our second biggest city, he reformed the curriculum there, which was uh, of the liberal, you know, the, the left, the Catholic left at that stage. Uh, he dragged it back to more Orthodox Catholic preaching and became the target of insane abuse from the media left and also disaffected Catholics, uh, Catholic priests, you know, the kind, the ones yes, that struggle yes. to believe in God. Um, the same sort of thing happened when he transferred to Sydney, our biggest city. He also was a climate, or is a climate skeptic that got him and preached on it. Well, not preached, he gave lectures on it. That gave him more abuse and he was against gay marriage and that really sealed the deal. He then became the target of criticism and so far I've seen no evidence and he denies it that he helped to cover up pedophile priests in the church 40 years ago and up to about 20 years ago. There's no evidence of that. And in fact, he was the first leader of any church uh, in Australia to institute a, as soon as he became Archbishop of Melbourne, had the authority to institute uh, a sort of a compensation scheme it was the first compensation scheme for victims of child sexual abuse. So that's the irony there. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting twist to this. He then became, because he's a man of great talent, the third or fourth most high-ranking official in the Vatican. He was, in fact, a prince of the church and in charge of the Vatican's finances. He led an enormous anti-corruption drive that reached virtually to the feet of the Pope, not the Pope himself. And uh, it was extraordinary. I, I talked to him in Rome some years ago and he was talking about possible mafia involvement. He was talking about having to hide documents in two other countries in case something happened to him or his staff. Uh, he talked about uh, finding a cardinal with a suitcase full of unexplained cash. Uh, it's been, the, the level of corruption has been extraordinary. And it is the view of many uh, top Vatican officials who are part of this investigation that the troubles he was causing officials there is related to the troubles he's since faced here. So he's, a, he's a, obviously a huge, for, for, for being a climate skeptic, for being an Orthodox Catholic, um, that put him in the crosshairs. So what happened then? Tell us about the case and the weaknesses of the case uh, and, and initially what happened in the conviction. In the yes, conviction. well, it's from accusations that he covered up child sexual abuse until suddenly the accusation that it was a child sex abuser himself. This, the genesis of this, goes to the role of the police in Victoria, which has, some, since one, one of the detectives involved in a task force investigating him has conceded in court that it seemed, you could probably say, it was a get-pill agenda. It yeah. became a prosecutorial force, not an investigative force. Mm -hmm. They came, there was all this anti-Pell hysteria driven in uh, by the state broadcast, the ABC, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the Victoria Police actually launched a public appeal for witnesses to come forward, not just witnesses, victims, as in the presumption that they were victims, victims to come forward who had been abused in Pell's Cathedral in exactly the years that he was the Archbishop there. This is a process that we've seen in, in mis similar miscarriages of justice in Britain, certain to engender false memories, uh, mm -hmm. 
encourage people after attention or compensation uh, to put a name to a, a vaguely remembered trauma, like, oh, it must have been him. They came forward eventually, the police, with nine separate people claiming that they'd been abused by Pell, 26 different charges, every single one of which was so preposterous or so shoddily investigated or so weak that they have collapsed. The mm -hmm. High Court decision last week acquitting Pell of uh, the last four charges were the final ones. 26 attempts the police made to try to get George Pell jailed. They have failed 26 times. And today, just as I'm about to go to air with Pell's uh, reaction to this, the police have said, oh, by the way, we found a 27th. Yes, and of course. I mean, it is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so bad, just to give you one example. One of the charges that has just been quashed, and there are, this is just an, an example, I could give you others, involved Pell doing something totally unbelievable. I mean, literally unbelievable. He is supposed to be coming from Mass in full regalia. Next to him is a priest in a corridor, and I've seen the corridor, it's narrow, with 50 choristers leaving Mass. So there's all these witnesses and Pell is alleged to have jumped on one of the choir boys, pushed him against the wall, grabbed his testicles, given a hard squeeze, and guess what? Police charged him for that without interviewing a single one of those witnesses. Not a one. And when police were finally uh, forced by the defence, etc., to, ah, oh, well, we better go try to stand this up, no one could recall anything so ludicrous having happened within their sight. I mean, you're right. The, the, this this new way of of announcing that you 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 want victims of a certain person to come forward, and even giving them a time yes. when they may be victims and a place encourages all kinds of people, and sometimes mentally ill people, sometimes confused people. Uh, and sometimes people, bad people, come forward. We, we've seen that. Um, so, how did how did that get past the jury? I mean, did the law? Did they? You know, how did they, that? Uh, tell me about how the law was allowed to, to go that far. How? Well, how, first of all, how did it get in front of a jury? Who knows? You know, like we've got trial by jury in Australia. It's a crime for a jury, any jury member, to actually say what went on inside. There was first one. Uh, committal hearing, which extraordinarily led it through. Some of the some of the cases got dropped at that point. There was one <laughs> there was one where police charged George Pell with anally raping a boy for three minutes while the boy is screaming in a cinema from, uh, to which Pell had allegedly taken this boy, having taken him out of a boy's home. Now, the cinema, I've heard from the cinema manager at the time, was crowded. It had two attendants on either, on either aisle, and no one noticed the boy being anally raped for three minutes. Are you kidding me? And, uh, you know, it supposedly, of course, huge anal injuries that needed medical treatment. The boy's foster mother didn't recall it. His doctor didn't recall it. And by the way, he wasn't even living in that boy's home. 
in the year we're talking about, and nor was the film screened in that year, and police charged him with that. So you've got to see, this is in the context of an anti-Pell hysteria that was just absolutely extraordinary. And there were screaming crowds greeting Pell every time he was forced to go to and from the court, screaming abuse. And then the loudest screamers got on the media and had their say without question about what a monster he was. It was something out of Salem times two. Yeah. So the, two, the first jury couldn't reach a verdict. They tried it again. The second jury, after four days, so there must have been some sort of argy-bargy, but someone gave in and they found him guilty. I've heard some reasons why. I better not disclose them. There was an appeal to the Victorian Supreme Court, the state highest court, to the Court of Appeal there. And two to one, they found against him. They said, no, the jury was made of, you know, it was uh, not beyond reasonable doubt and that was fine. The one judge that found for him was the only one with criminal experience, extensive criminal experience. He was so incensed by the other two judges that he wrote a brilliant and much longer defense appeal, which the High Court then, our National Court of Appeal, the High Court then took his side of the matter so emphatically, virtually unprecedented unanimity, a single judgment, seven to one, a seven to nil, seven to nil, acquitting George Pell, criticising the Victorian Court of Appeal, the senior judges there, uh, for making, for not taking account matters into account in Pell's defence that they should have. Yeah. And just, and just for again for our listeners who don't maybe know this case very well, how long did Cardinal Pell spend in prison? Four hundred and five days in prison for a crime that he could not possibly have committed. This is the bizarre thing where the whole case came down like a house of cards. I actually listened or read very carefully the evidence given by the plaintiff as much as has been released because his identity is secret, his testimony is secret. It's like almost like a star chamber here. It's the anonymous accusation. But, it, you know, obviously the jury heard it. Insofar as it was summed up by the Victorian Court of Appeal, I went through it. We're told that George Pell raped two boys at once, two teenagers at once, in his sacristy, the sort of change room, storage room, straight after Mass, in an open door room. Now, he didn't even know the boys. He didn't know if one was the son of a policeman or something like that. He just pounced on them. No grooming, just pounced on them. Now, what I found amazing is how could he have possibly done this in this open room straight after mass when the room was used as a storage room for and change room for the people involved in the mass for the uh, for the altar service and the priests and was being used to store all the sacred objects used in the mass. The boy said that after the mass, he walked all the way back to the back of the cathedral with choristers before breaking away, doubling back, entering a side door, reaching the room with his with another guy who now dead, who actually told his mother he hadn't been abused. Um, the, the two of them are there. They find the altar wine, they drink it, and then Pell arrives and says, aha, and then rapes them for five to six minutes. Witnesses, unchallenged, place Pell in that entire time at the front of his cathedral, as is common, greeting 
the parishioners had sat there. So he, the evidence was he couldn't have been there in the only five to six minutes that the prosecution said could the rape could have happened, which is immediately after mass, people are praying, the servers haven't got to the room yet, um, it's open, they claim, the evidence wasn't locked, it was open and Pell pounced on them there before the servers arrived and started tidying the thing away. Pell's actually out the front, so witnesses, out the front. He's also yeah. always accompanied by a guy, an MC, Charles, Monsignor Charles Portelli, who never leaves him, that's his duty, until Pell goes home. Portelli says he didn't leave Pell. So that was one thing. I then traced the track that the boy said he took, his own evidence, and I timed it. He couldn't have got to that room himself until five or six minutes had passed, following the procession, down the back, breaking away, going to the sacristy, rummaging around, drinking wine, that was five or six minutes. He, this is a crime where neither the perpetrator nor the victim could have been there at the only time that the judges said the rape had to have occurred. It was a nonsense. Well, unfortunately, we have to cut that interview short. We've had some technical difficulties. You could hear the, the sound deteriorating there towards the end of the picture. That's probably due to, uh, well, Australia and the current pandemic uh, uh, restrictions. We're, we're, we're operating on very low technical uh, equipment here due to lack of lack of people in the room. So it was, that was a very interesting interview. We, uh, we, we further went on to talk about Andrew's favorite work of art, Andrew's favorite cocktail, and, and other interesting stories. But we'll come back. We're, we're definitely coming back to Andrew Bolt. As you can see, he's a fascinating guest, really knows this story inside out. As we talked about, it, it's, it's really the Australian Duke Lacrosse case where only the person involved went to prison. Uh, but was sent to prison by a media mob and a, and, a, and, a, and all kinds of mobs. So we'll be coming back to the story because, as we said, there's a there's a 27th allegation. This story's going to run and run. So we've come to the end of this show, quite a long show, but I think a great show, actually. We were so lucky to have Dean Cain and Andrew Bolt today. But tune in again next week, and please leave a comment and, and give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating if you can. And stay safe and well where you are. Yeah. So, yes, go to the Apple Podcast, leave a rating there. Leave a comment there. Go on YouTube, leave a comment. We always like to respond to the YouTube comments and forward this link to anyone you might think might be interested. Don't forget to listen to The Daily Virus, our daily podcast uh, on the Alan Film Scoop, uh, a shorter podcast about the coronavirus crisis and the coronavirus madness. So all the best, stay safe, and talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.